0: Good morning. Tomorrow marks the 11th anniversary of my heart attack. 11 years ago, I woke up at 3 in the morning. I was having severe chest pains. I thought, boy, this is bad indigestion. And I got up and tried to figure out what was going on. Finally got out the little HealthWise book, looked up heart attack, because I had pain down my arm and up my neck, and I thought, this sounds like something I've read about. I looked through there, and it was pretty clear, yeah, I think I'm having a heart attack, but it took me a while to just even admit it. So I woke up Jeannie, we went down to the hospital emergency room, and they said, well, yeah, people your age, it's usually indigestion, but we'll check on it, and hooked up an EKG and immediately went crazy started giving me nitro orally intravenously and kept me in hospital for a while. Next day did an angiogram so they could see what was going on in my heart to find out what the problem was. The doctor, cardiologist, later said, well, you had a heart attack, you had some heart damage, but it was minor. I don't think it was functional, it was just cosmetic. So I'm thinking... So I have an ugly heart now? Uh, What's that mean? (laughs) Then he said this. He said, yeah, if we were to do an autopsy right now, we would probably have a hard time finding the damage. You're not planning on doing one, are you? (laughs) I'm I'm okay. I'm still here. (laughs) On the passage that Valerie just read, Psalm 51, near the end, David says, You don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. What David is essentially saying in those verses is that God delights in a broken heart, a crushed heart. Literally, that's what he's saying, a crushed, shattered heart. Now think about this. Doesn't this go counter to what the world tells us? The world around us despises humility and brokenness. The world around us says, you need to have a proud, independent, not needing anyone else. I did it my way. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, able to handle anything kind of heart. But... The kingdom of God is so contrary to the world, isn't it? What God delights in, the world despises. And what God rejects, the world delights in. Well, our job as followers of Jesus Christ are to follow him. And Jesus modeled for us a broken heart, a contrite heart, when he went to the cross for us. So if God delights in a broken heart, If that's what makes him dance over us with joy, when he sees us with a broken heart, what does it look like? Well, imagine being able to do surgery on David, this man who understood a broken heart, do an angiogram, so to speak, and look at his heart and see what a broken heart looks like. Well, Psalm 51 really does that for us. It shows us the anatomy of a broken heart. So let's pray together, shall we? And then we'll look at this beautiful psalm together. Lord, we come before you as needy people. Whether we recognize it or not, we need your grace every moment. Your forgiveness every moment. Thank you for David's openness, his honesty about himself so that we can see inside his heart so we can understand more what you are looking for in us, what you delight in. May our hearts be open to you that we might learn what it means to live as people with broken hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage begins with this superscription, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So he wrote this psalm at that very time when he was confronted about his sin. You know the story, how David should have been out at war. That's what the passage says. Second Samuel chapter 11, it says, It was springtime, at the time when the king should be out leading their people in battle. David had sent out the army, but he was taking a nap on his roof in the afternoon. He woke up, was walking around, looked down, saw Bathsheba bathing. He lusted for her. He sent people to bring her up, slept with her. She got pregnant. Now what is he going to do? He has to cover it up. So he calls Uriah home, hoping that he'll go sleep with his wife and no one will know. But Uriah wouldn't. He was man of honor. While well, the army's fighting, I'm not going into my wife, he said. So David had Uriah the Hittite killed and took Bathsheba in. Well, that went on for some time. He hid it. But God sent Nathan the prophet to confront him. Now, marvelous story where Nathan came to him and said there were two men in the city and there was a very rich man, a very poor man, and the rich man had big flocks, a lot of sheep, but he had friends come over and he decided that he would go to the poor man who only had one lamb that was like part of the family. And he took that man's lamb and killed it rather than his own. And David was angry. David says, it says, David's anger burned greatly against the man. he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? And at the very time of David being confronted with his own sin, he wrote Psalm 51. It's a wonderful picture for us of how to deal with our own sin before God and what it means to have a broken heart. He begins in these first couple of verses by saying, Be gracious to me or merciful to me, O God, according to your love and kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. David begins by reminding himself of three qualities of God's character. God's grace or mercy. God's loyal love, his loving kindness. God's compassion. You see, David knows something we always need to remember. And that is... Our only recourse before God is to appeal to God's gracious character. Not anything we do or can do can earn any kind of right standing before God. It's only God's character of compassion and grace that allows us to come before him. David is king. He knows that everything he does affects the whole nation. But what I appreciate about David here is notice that he doesn't attempt to appeal to anything else other than God's character for mercy. He doesn't say, I I promise I'll work harder to be good. He doesn't say, look how good I've been in the past. I'm a man after your own heart. He doesn't say, God, look what a great king I've been. Will you forgive me? No. He comes and he realizes the only recourse, the only appeal he has is God's grace, God's character, God's compassion. And he didn't even have the cross to look back to like we do. He had learned about God's compassion, God's love, but we have the cross. And so when we see our sin, when we fail, when we blow it, we can always look back and say, God, I appeal to you on the basis of the cross your compassion, your grace shown to me on the cross. I have nothing else to appeal to. And in the second verse, he mentions three different ways that he has sinned. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Oh, and at the end of verse 1, your compassion blot out my transgressions. He talks about three different characteristics of God He mentions three ways he has sinned, three descriptions of his sin. First, transgressions. Transgressions are where there's a line. You know that to step over that line is wrong, and yet you choose to do it. That's a transgression. You cross the line. The second word he uses for sin means to miss the mark. I'm living life my own way, and I just fail to live up to what God wants me to do and be. The third word he uses is a word that's translated iniquity often. It's talking about the deeper sinfulness, the deeper deeper bent of my heart that says, deep down, I want to rule my own life. I don't want to trust you, God. I want to be the boss of my own life. I want to sit on the throne. I'm a rebel deep in my heart. And so what David appeals to in this as he faces his own sinfulness, as he says, essentially, I need all that God is to deal with the depths of my own sinfulness. I'm helpless without God's grace. And if you want a good summary of what a broken heart is, that's a good summary. I am helpless without God's grace. I need you. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness every moment So that's just the introductory verses. Now he goes on to give, I think, three pictures of the anatomy of a broken heart. First is that a broken heart is a confessing heart. Verses 3 through 6. A broken heart is a confessing heart. He says, I know my transgressions, my my sins ever before me, Against you, you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. The first thing he does to confess is essentially David saying, I have done wrong. I have done wrong. I've done evil. What I did was bad. And again, David gives no excuses, no blaming Bathsheba. She shouldn't have been on that roof, God, you know. I mean, it's partly her fault. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I chose to do wrong. No blaming someone else. No quickly admitting it and then, okay, you need to forgive me now. No, he says something interesting in verse 3. My sin is ever before me. David's really looking at his sin and what he's done and what he can learn from that about himself. Now, not that God wants us to just be morbidly introspective and just gazing at our sin all the time. But, I appreciate what he does do here. He says, I look at it. I look at the reality of it. I don't take it lightly. It's always before me. I think David is responding in a way that's unusual for us. I think we tend to say, well, I did it, when we're caught. I did it, but, (laughs) but but i'm a victim of bad parenting but i was going through a stressful time i made a bad choice but you know i'm really a pretty good person most of the time well i did it but you need to forgive me now you know we we have our excuses or our ways of kind of deflecting and not really looking at it blaming someone else like adam and eve did immediately you know They were confronted with their sin and rebellion against God. And Adam says, well, the woman you gave me (laughs) was not my fault. And she says, well, the snake made me do it, the serpent. But David doesn't blame Bathsheba or anyone else. He just says, I did it. I did it. Early in our marriage, first few years, uh, Janie discovered I was hard to confront. Because if she brought something up to me that she was disappointed about in me or in our marriage, I really couldn't handle it. I was so committed. I'm a pastor. I have to have it together. And so if she confronted me about something, brought something up, I would either say, okay, okay, I'm wrong, I'll fix it, and just try to fix it, but I wasn't really looking at it. I dismissed it too quickly. Or I would find some excuse to deflect it from me. And it took a while for me to learn and to hear what I was doing. Not that I do it all right now, but uh, I think it's a tendency for all of us to want to deflect our sin. David says something really interesting in verse 4. Against you and you only I have sinned. Well, wait a minute, David. You did terrible things. You essentially raped Bathsheba. You murdered her husband. You affected the entire nation when you did it. How can you say against God and God only you sinned? I think what he's saying is that David is saying that the enormity of his sin against God is so great. When we choose sin, it's essentially against God and our rebellion against God is so big that it makes everything else dim in comparison. And so he ends verse 4 by saying, I deserve whatever judgment you give me. You see, that's an open confession, right? It's, it's just admitting freely. And it's so hard for us to do that, but a broken heart is a confessing heart that freely says, I have done wrong. Doesn't minimize it. He actually kind of blows it up on a big screen for God, for himself, and all of us to see. I think that's healthy. Now, I'm not saying that, or suggesting that we should go around trumpeting our sin to everybody. Guess what I did? <laughs> I want everybody to know. No, I don't think that's accurate. But I do think it's a picture for us that we do need to confess to somebody, not just God. We, we tend to confess to God, okay, God forgives me, and we continue to kind of hide it and i think it continues to have power over us and so i think the suggestion here is that we need to confess our sin like james says five sixteen. he says confess your sins to one another that you might be healed real healing comes when we let others some others see what we've done well, he continues to confess by not just saying I have done wrong, but in 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6, he takes it further and he says, you know, what I've learned from this is I am wrong. I am sinful. I not only did sin, but I am wrong. I am sinful. And he talks about how I was brought forth in an iniquity and sin my mother conceived me. I believe what he's saying there is he's saying, I was born with the DNA of sinfulness. From the womb, I had this bent to go against you, God, and to go my own way. I, even in the womb, verse 6, was morally accountable to you. Even from the womb. Essentially what he's saying is, my sin has taught me something about myself, and that is I am a sinful mess. (laughs) And unless, God, you work in my life, I am lost. Oh, I can kind of look pretty good a lot of times. I can kind of control it a lot of times. But what I've learned is that there's something in me that has a bent to turn away from God, just like Paul learned. He talks about it in Romans 7, where he says this, verse 19, For the good that I want, I don't do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Both David and Paul learned from their failure that I have a problem. I have a cancer in me that I can't get rid of. Now just as a little aside, notice what David is saying here. He's saying, even in the womb, I was morally accountable, God, to you. I think that's a wonderful statement of how even in the womb we are morally accountable beings before God. This is a wonderful passage to say life begins at conception that abortion is wrong because life begins at conception if we are morally accountable even in the womb, if we are spiritual beings even in the womb. So... As we look at David's heart, we see, first of all, that a broken heart is a confessing heart. It doesn't hide. It's wide open. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Secondly, then, the next step David takes us on, the next part of his heart that we get to see through this angiogram of Psalm 51, is that a broken heart is a dependent heart. Dependent heart. If you're really facing, I'm a mess, How do you deal with it? Three common responses for us, I think, is one, we take it too lightly. We try to deflect. We don't want to think about it. Another wrong response, I think, is that we get overwhelmed with guilt. And we live in regret. We kind of punish ourselves, beat ourselves up, thinking maybe if I just punish myself enough, then I'll feel better trying to deal with our sinfulness ourselves. Another common response, and I think I have done all these, I think most of us have, is we do penance. We try to be good to make up for our sinfulness for what we've done. So we work real hard and say, God, okay, I'm going to be really good now. I'm going to to try real hard to be a good person, make it up to you, God, and feel better about ourselves. But if we're really honestly facing what a mess we are inside, we'll realize there's nothing we can do to take care of our sinfulness ourselves. We need God to act or we are lost. And that's where David goes here. He doesn't use any of those other ways of trying to deal with his sin, but he goes right to God because he understands that he is bankrupt. Some of you have been through incredible financial difficulties, Probably most of us have at times in our lives and we work real hard to pay off our debts or to make it, figure out how to deal with it. But some of you have reached a point in your life at times where you came to the end of yourself and you realized, I can't deal with this financial mess myself. And you've had to declare bankruptcy. That's what David is doing spiritually here. That's what a broken heart reflects. Lord, I am completely bankrupt before you. I can't deal with this mess. I need you to act. So what does he do? What does David do in his bankruptcy? He cries out for God to act. He's dependent on God. A broken heart is a dependent heart that says, God, I need you to work. I can't deal with it myself. So in verses 7 through 9, he cries out to God and I summarize it by saying he's crying out for God to forgive him. Forgive me, Lord. Take away the guilt of my sin. He uses some beautiful illustrations here to try to reflect that several. He uses cleanse me with hyssop, purify me with hyssop so that I may be clean. In the Old Testament, hyssop was a plant that the priests would dip in blood, the blood of the sacrificed animals, and then then would use it for purification. One of the things he would purify is a leper a leper can't deal with his leprosy himself but the purification comes from the priest he uses another picture he says wash me that i may be whiter than snow that word for wash is really a laundry term the way they did laundry in those days is they would take you know a wash tub or something or do it in the river or whatever they had they would put the clothes in there, soak them, put in the soap, and then they would stomp on him, beat on him to get the stains out. Essentially, that's what David is saying here. Oh, Lord, my stain goes so deep in me, I need you to launder me, to wash me, to make me whiter than snow. I can't do it myself. Wash me. Wash me. Another illustration he uses where he says in verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. That word for blot means to take a dish and wipe it clean. Erase everything that's in there. Essentially what David is saying here is, Lord, I got such a stain that's so deep. I need you to take everything you have to clean me, to forgive me, to take away my stain, my guilt, my punishment. Verse 7 through 9. Then he continues to cry out to God in verses 10 through 12, and essentially what he's saying in verses 10 through 12 is not just forgive me, but change me. Lord, I'm a mess, and I can't change myself. I need you to change me. Notice how beautifully he puts it. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create something new in me, God, That word for create really means to create something out of nothing. It's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing. (laughs) And God spoke and created something out of nothing. And David's saying, man, i got nothing to bring to you but my sinfulness. But will you create something new in me? Create in me a new heart, a heart that longs to have a steadfast spirit, one that doesn't waver and, and run away from you and come back and try to do and No, I want a steadfast spirit. A steadfast spirit is one that sticks to you, is faithful to you and to your covenant. I want a willing spirit. He says in verse 12, sustain me with a willing spirit. Give me the kind of spirit that wants to follow you, Lord, that wants to do your will. He recognized that only God can change me. Please, Lord. Create something new in me. He says something interesting in verse um, t- 11, where he says, Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. What is David saying there? We come from a New Testament perspective, and for us to say that, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, is, would be a way of saying, I'm afraid of... Losing my salvation. I'm afraid I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And we know that we don't have to be afraid of that. Once the Holy Spirit's in you, He'll never leave. He's a permanent resident in you. So what is David saying here? Well, David's saying something different. He's not saying, Don't let me stop being a Christian. He's saying, You see, in the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit came upon someone, He anointed them for a specific task empowered them for a specific task. We see it over and over again in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit didn't come permanently on believers until Pentecost when the power power of the Holy Spirit was poured out on all believers and so every believer since has the permanent resident, the Holy Spirit, in them. But what David is essentially saying is don't take away my empowering to be king, to minister in your name. Keep using me to bless others. Don't take away my ministry. Essentially what he's saying. So David shows us that a broken heart is a confessing heart, totally open about my sin and my sinfulness. Secondly, a broken heart is a dependent heart that looks to God to deal with the mess that I am and depends on Him day by day and minute by minute. And then finally, what we see in this psalm is that a broken heart is a worshiping heart. A heart that, because of what it's been through, has learned to worship God and longs to worship God for what He's done. You see, sin shuts us up before God, it causes us to say, I have nothing to say, God. I'm a sinner, period. No excuses. But what David cries out for in verses 13 through 17 is, Lord, open my lips that I might praise your name because you've forgiven me. You've given me new life. You are at work. You have done what I've asked and therefore I want to teach others what I've learned. I want to declare publicly your righteousness. I praise you. So he tells his story of God's forgiveness and grace in the face of his sin. Let me just ask you this. Do you have a story of God's forgiveness, of God's grace, God's compassion, how you have sinned against him and yet he has stepped in and forgiven you and begun to change you? Let me encourage you to do what David does because that's part of praising God, worshiping him. Tell your story. Tell your story so that God might get the praise for what he's done in restoring you and bringing life to a broken heart. So what David has learned, we're back to verse 16 and 17, from this journey he's been on, is that God doesn't delight in sacrifices. He doesn't want our religiosity. He doesn't want us to work hard to make it up to him. In fact, what God delights in is a broken and contrite heart. He doesn't want religious activity. He wants a confessing heart, a dependent heart, a worshiping heart, a heart that's crushed by its own sinfulness, depends on God for restoration, and praises Him as the only One who can bring forgiveness and life. And I really believe this attitude were to have this broken-heartedness is not something just for when we blow it big time like David did. I think he wants us to live in the reality of our brokenness every day with a constant kind of repentance, a constant awareness before God. I'm a sinner. I need God every moment. I'm depending on you. Work in my life, God. And I will praise you and worship you for what you're doing. There's an interesting word in verse 17. At the end, it says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That word despise is a key word back in Second Samuel and this whole incident of David's sin. Because when Nathan confronts David, listen to what he says in 2 Samuel 12, verses 9 and 10. Why, Nathan says, have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Nathan says sin is essentially despising God's word. It's despising him. It's saying I'm not going to take you into account. I am going to do what I want to do. And now David, as he writes Psalm 51, recognizes that in us there's this tendency to think, when I face my sin, if I really look at it, God must be so angry with me, he must despise me. He uses the same word. But notice what David has learned. He says, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. God isn't angry with you if you sin. If you're willing to confess it, to become dependent on Him, to look to Him to deal with it, come to Him with nothing but your brokenness, God doesn't despise it. In fact, He dances over you with joy. He delights in it when we come to Him and simply admit, I need you, God, because I'm a sinner. I like the way Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, A heart crushed is a fragrant heart. Just like a flower that's been, the petals have been crushed and it releases the fragrance. A heart crushed is a fragrant heart. When we allow sin to do its work, we recognize our brokenness before Him. That's the kind of heart that God uses to build His kingdom. Not a proud, arrogant heart that says, I can do this for you, God. Yeah, we're come on, let's go do it. No, the kind of heart that builds God's kingdom is the kind of heart that Jesus modeled for us. A heart that says, I'm desperately dependent on you every minute, God. Let's go. I'll follow you because of your grace on me. Now the psalm ends with these two verses that seem real out of place superficially. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you'll delight in righteous sacrifices, burnt offerings, etc. Now wait a minute, David, you just said God doesn't want sacrifices. And you're ending your psalm by saying, Do good to Zion so that, you know, you'll delight in our sacrifices. What are you saying, David? Some scholars think these two verses were added later because they didn't like what David said. I think David wrote them. I think what David is saying is this. Please restore the people of God. I've sinned against them. I've done damage to the people of God by my sin. Please restore them so that we might, as a community, worship you. Sometimes we think our sin only affects us, but David's recognizing that that's never true. No matter how alone you might think you are, if you're a body of, part of the body of Christ, if you sin, it affects The whole body. That's a clear teaching of Scripture. So he's crying out, Restore all your people, not just me, that we might really worship you. A final note David had consequences for his sin. Nathan says, Because you chose to rebel against God, the baby that was conceived in your sin with Bathsheba will die and that baby did but God's restoration is amazing folks because think about it God gave David and Bathsheba another son that son was Solomon Solomon his name means shalom it's from the word shalom from peace wholeness God has restored me And Solomon became arguably the greatest king that Israel ever had seen. What a marvelous gift of restoration. God wants to restore you and me if we will simply come with a broken heart, confess our sin, depend on him to deal with it, and worship him as a result. God is a gracious, redemptive God who when we come to him with a broken heart, he pours out his grace on us, and we can come to him with our sin because he has dealt with it on the cross he loves us he saves he's a redemptive God he's gracious merciful and loving let's pray oh Lord what a marvelous picture of your goodness to us and what a convicting picture of our own brokenness and lostness before you May we live in that reality, the brokenness day by day of our sinfulness, but your goodness. That our lives might be a testimony to all others of what a redemptive God you are. That you are a God who saves. We give you praise and thanks. Amen.